regaining myself. Early in January 1946, I went to the Bruns in Maastricht. I was back in civvies again. I asked Mr. Brun for my money, and he told me that a few weeks earlier, the Dutch police had searched the house hunting for black market goods and money. They'd rummaged everywhere, and they just missed finding my money by a hair's breadth. It was stashed among the linens. I left Maastricht and took a train up north. The trains were running again, but travel was still slow and often interrupted. Many bridges hadn't been rebuilt. I spent about two days getting to Froneker. I arrived and found that everything there looked the same. I took a room in a small hotel and went to the town hall the next morning. In most Western European countries, residents are registered in the local city hall. This was the custom in the Netherlands, too. I presented myself to the town clerk. My name is Moritz Schnitzer. I lived here in Froneker for two years until late 1941. I was registered in this office. I'm a Jew from Germany. I'm stateless. The Nazis took away my citizenship. You've heard what happened. I lost all my papers because of the war. You know what happened during the war. We were all pushed from place to place. I lost my resident visa and my Dutch work permit. So now I need to establish my identity. He stared at me. What? What's this you're saying? Is what you're saying true? Sure, it's true, I answered. Ask some other people. He was a young man. Ask older people. They'll tell you it's true. Dumbfounded, he answered. All right, what's your name? I'll look it up in my files. He scanned some files and returned about five minutes later holding a paper. Moritz Schnitzer, yes, you died in 1942. What do you mean? I exclaimed. How could I have died in 1942? Don't you see me here? I'm here. It's 1946. I'm standing in front of you. I'm not dead. It says you're dead, and it has the official stamp. I don't care if it's stamped or not, I protested. I'm here, right in front of you. How can I be dead? I pointed at the document. See the picture? It looks like me, doesn't it? Yeah, he agreed. It looks like you. Then how can I be dead if I'm standing in front of you? He was stumped. I don't know what we can do. I can't do anything about it. You're dead, and that's that. The death had been certified by someone in the local administration. The Germans had probably furnished a list naming people who were dead, and no one had questioned it. Look, there has been a mistake. There has to be a solution. He finally conceded. I'll talk to the mayor. The mayor was in his office when the clerk went up to consult him. Soon the mayor came down and questioned me. You're one of the Jewish boys who was here before? Yes, I am. I see. That's very interesting, he said. Still hesitating, he repeated. Is this true what you're saying? Certainly it's true, I replied. You can see my picture right there. I know this place. I've been here before. I'm no stranger to Franeker. I lived here for two years. He relented. Sit down for a few minutes. He searched through a law book in a code of regulations. Then he said, All right, if you can bring me a witness who will testify that you are Moritz Schnitzer, then we'll fill out all the papers for you and give you an identification card. My one recourse was to go to a farmer I'd worked for. Maybe the farmer would recognize me and be my witness. I walked out of the building and along the main street. I passed the old train station we'd lived in. The structure was still there. I continued down the Harlinger Vech toward the farm that used to be three minutes by bicycle from the Hakshara. A farm laborer saw me and recognized me right away. He gasped, 
Ah, Mose! They had called me Mose on that farm. He came over and embraced me. Then he called the farmer. The farmer, Fonderberch, came out. Mose! He cried. You! And he kissed me. There were tears in his eyes. A Frisian farmer crying. I'd always thought those people had no emotions. My unexpected return had fractured a deep reserve. The next thing the farmer did was take me into his living room. I'd never seen the living room before as I'd always been in the stable. He sat me down in the kitchen. You must eat with us. His two sons, who had worked with me, also remembered me, as did his wife. What a simcha, celebration it was. An unbelievable reception. Von der Berg kept saying, I'm so happy to see you and that you're alive. I'm so happy. We talked about you all the time. We wondered what had happened to all the boys and girls. What had happened to all of you? It has been so long, so many years with no news. People said that all of you died and now you're here. These people were religious. To them, it was as if I'd come back from the dead. They were awed to see me alive. The farmer himself offered to accompany me to the town hall. He said immediately, I'll take my bike, you take my son's bike. And away we went. We entered the town hall in the office of the mayor. Von der Berg declared, Of course Mose is Mose. I know him. Sure, it's true what he says. And then he signed affidavits as my witness, clearing the past detritus from my life. After fleeing the Gestapo so many years ago, I had finally received my own true identification card again. I thanked von der Berg and said goodbye to him. I was leaving Froniker and going to Amsterdam. I could be my own self again. I had to wait around for the day's one train. The Germans had seized many railway cars and taken them to Germany. Few passenger cars were available at that time, so we had to travel under primitive conditions in freight cars. At last, a couple of days later, I reached Amsterdam. Mokum, the place, as the Frisians called the city. I thought it would now be simple to obtain ration tickets, which were still in use even for basic foods. Also, I needed an updated visa to stay in the Netherlands. I went to the city hall in Amsterdam and learned that I would have to see the police before being issued these papers. Many war criminals are sneaking in here. We can't give out anything before you get clearance. I hurried to the police station. Three or four people were ahead of me. They were under great strain. When my turn arrived, I told the police officer who I was and that I'd been on Hakshara in the Netherlands until the end of 1941. I added a few more facts. The police officer observed, You are Yehudi? A Jew? I replied, Yes, of course. You know what we went through, all of us. He nodded, sure. And he gave me the necessary clearance. You're kosher now, he remarked. He happened to also be Jewish. I walked out with my clearance papers and returned to the city hall. I'd had a visa before the war, and now it was renewed. I was a legal resident of the Netherlands again. By January 1946, the Mizrahi organization was running a residence called a Beth Chalutz, Pioneer House in Amsterdam, for people who were planning to settle in the land of Israel. Founded by men who'd been in the Jewish brigade of the British army, the residents had sleeping and eating accommodations for displaced people. So I stayed there on my return to Amsterdam. Meanwhile, the Zionist group I'd been affiliated with was about to set up a new Hakshara in Dieren near Arnhem, 
It had been started from scratch about two weeks after I arrived in Amsterdam because people like me were now surfacing after so many years of war. The only other person to reappear from our original group that had been located in Franeker was Bram, the Dutch fellow who'd escaped with me in November 1941. After he and I had split up, he'd succeeded in crossing over to England. There, he joined the Free Dutch Forces. Things balance out in strange ways. In 1941, I'd probably saved Brahm's life. Then, after the war, he was the source of a momentous turn in my life. I met him in Amsterdam in January 1946. Through him, my brother Eddie subsequently learned that I was alive because Brahm mentioned me to a friend of his in England who knew my brother, and that person told Eddie about me. I was in residence in Amsterdam when I received a telegram from Eddie. It came from Canada and read, Overjoyed to hear you are alive. Stop. I am okay. Stop. Cable answer about everything. Stop. We'll send parcels money. Stop. Wife and I will see you here soon. Stop. Love, Edmund. I cabled an answer immediately to let him know I'd received the telegram. He wrote me by airmail the same day outlining details of his past five years and formulating plans. His cable and letter were dated February 5th, 1946, one day after my 24th birthday. I moved to the Hakshara in Diren a few days later and wrote back to Eddie from there. I wasn't thinking seriously about his proposal to go to Canada, as I was still set on going to Israel. I was the only survivor of Fronikur to participate in the new Hakshara. Bram didn't rejoin because he was still unwell after contracting tuberculosis during the war. Since I'd been on Hakshara before, the organizers put me in charge. I was the most experienced person there. In Diren, I now gave the religious lessons, just as Rabbi Yehoshua Wolf had wanted me to do years earlier. I performed all the functions that Rabbi Wolf had performed in Fronikar. We built a busy Hakshara. We had between 25 and 30 members, most of us working on farms, as we'd done in Fronikar. This time, however, we sent some members to learn trades. I myself went back to farming. By now, it was easy for me. I enjoyed it, too, and found the work satisfying compared to working in an army of occupation. Some of us worked on contract, as was common in Belgium during the sugar beet season. Teams of us took on specialized jobs for farmers. We worked very hard. We also enrolled in a study program at a local agriculture school. In response to our request for instruction in theoretical farming, the principal gave us an initial course on the chemistry of soils and fertilizers. I surprised myself by picking it up very fast, even though I hadn't studied much chemistry before. At the Adath Israel Gymnasium in Berlin, I'd done a little science, but eight years later I had forgotten all of it. I memorized every formula our instructor wrote down quickly and accurately. He said to me one day, in all the years that I've been teaching, I've never had a student who grasped a subject as fast as you do. I took several more of his courses, and he got to know me well. Then he said to me, I'd like to send you to the Agricultural University in Wacheningen. I want to sponsor you. He was mentally stimulated by teaching our eager group and appreciated my ability to quickly learn the material. Usually he taught uninterested farm boys and couldn't drive anything into their heads. To my astonishment, he offered me a college education at his own expense. 
Our courses were given in the evenings because of our daytime work. I was attending a class one day when someone came to fetch me. There's a phone call for you from Canada. We didn't have a phone in the Hakshara, so I went to take the call in a hotel. Eddie was on the line with his father-in-law. We're glad you survived the war, Moisha, his father-in-law said. Now we want you to come to Canada. I told him, thanks for the invitation, but I want to go to Israel. I've been preparing myself to go for seven years since 1939. That's why I'm here on Hakshara. I had started the Hakshara and was now in charge of it. I couldn't leave the group. I explained this to Eddie and his father-in-law. Afterwards, just as they had at the start of the war, the British blockaded British Mandate Palestine. Legal immigration had become impossible. The only way to enter was covertly on what was called Aliyah Bet, a movement that attempted to circumvent the blockade. Some Jews who tried this dangerous method lost their lives in the attempt. Most who came from displaced persons camps in Europe were turned back and interned by the British in Cyprus and elsewhere, often detained for months. I continued writing to my brother while still planning to go to Israel. I was helping build an active organization in the Netherlands. We now had several hundred members. Then, who arrived in Diren? Unexpectedly, Shoshana. She suddenly appeared and wanted to join the kibbutz. I thought you were going to marry a man from Hirlin. I thought you were engaged to him. She'd always given me the impression that she would be married soon. I was engaged to marry him, yes, but I couldn't go through with it. I didn't like him that much. She became a member of the Hakshara in Diren. She left Maastricht and moved in with us. We saw more and more of each other, and I fell in love with her, and she with me. I'd impressed her as an experienced person. I'd knocked around. The other man was settled in Hirlin, a not-too-exciting life. Shoshana was a talented artist, a potter. She was attractive, with black hair and big brown eyes. After a while, I asked her to marry me. She was under 21 and a ward of the state. After the war, the Dutch authorities had begun to take an interest in orphaned Jewish children because of pressure from the churches. The Protestant church, for example, had been trying to convert some children who'd been saved by church members during the war. The state, therefore, assumed guardianship of these children. To marry Shoshana, I needed permission from the state. So I went to the Ministry of Social Welfare in Amsterdam and explained my situation to the officials. They made all kinds of objections, primarily that I had no income and wasn't settled. As the ones responsible for deciding what was in her best interests, they refused permission for the marriage. I told Shoshana, we can't get married here, but we'll be leaving the Netherlands. The government will have no jurisdiction over you then. We'll get married in France on our way to Israel. It isn't much of a problem. Everyone in the kibbutz knew our plans. We spent all our spare time together. Whenever I was called to Amsterdam to work in our head office, she was painfully lonely. I'd become secretary of Bachad, the young Mizrahi of the Netherlands. I was the senior member of the organization for a time. We had a group of 50 or 60 members in Amsterdam. I devoted considerable energy to organizing the group. In Amsterdam, I always stayed in a hostel called the Jotza Invalida. Jewish people of all ages lived there. It was the only public place in the city to get kosher food. I met my distant cousin, Avram Heller, there. He was the younger brother of Moishe Heller, who'd been with me on Hakshara and Franeker. 
Avram's father and mother had survived the war and were staying at the hostel. Avram had come from his kibbutz in Palestine to be with them. At the same time, he was acting as shaliach, envoy, for the Hakibutz Hadati movement, a branch of the Bachad. He spent about a year in the Netherlands. Avram and I worked side by side in the Mizrahi organization. Since I was familiar with Dutch conditions and he was a first-rate organizer, he advised me on what should be done and helped me carry out programs. I met hardly any Jews I'd known before. I tried to find the Kosters in Amsterdam and was told that a few months after I'd left his home, Professor Koster had been arrested on the grounds that he wasn't wearing a yellow star. The only one of his family to survive the war was the child who'd had special needs and had been placed in a non-Jewish home. I had tried to locate members of my family when I first reached Amsterdam in 1946. I haunted the refugee agencies and checked every register. Jewish groups, such as the World Zionist Organization, as well as the Red Cross and the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, UNRRA, were actively tracing and resettling people. These organizations published lists of survivors and tried to locate relatives, which was a massive international effort. My parents and Benno's names never emerged. I continued my search for many years. I pursue this information to this day. Eddie, too, made inquiries through Canadian, American, and British organizations. We tried to locate anyone we'd known who was missing. When reports described how the Nazis had killed six million Jews, I was still optimistic that Benno, at least, had survived. He had youth and strength to his advantage. But slowly, I accepted the fact that Eddie and I were probably the only ones alive in our immediate family. My parents, my brother Benno, my paternal grandmother, the Schmitz, the Brun girls, the group in Franeker, Pifka Levy, and many others had disappeared. Passover, 1946, arrived. After the holiday, the entire group on Hakshara was planning to move down to Marseille, France, to board a boat for Israel. I spent Passover in Maastricht with the Bruns. Shoshana was there, too. The holiday was interrupted by a call from our head office, asking me to come to Amsterdam immediately. I hurried there and found our leaders assembled, Avram Heller among them. They enjoined on me to wait in the Netherlands and not rush to Marseille, warning me that I would get stuck in Marseille for some time. I would be more useful to the movement if I remained in the Netherlands. I returned to Maastricht and reported this to Shoshana. She exploded with anger, accusing me of delaying and betraying her, of renouncing the marriage. Fuming, she alleged that my refusal to go to France after Passover was because I didn't want to marry her. I tried to explain that I had no authority, that none of our group could go to Marseille, that she wasn't free to go either. But she misconstrued the situation and railed that it was all my doing, that I'd manipulated the council into postponing our departure. Then she broke off our engagement. She was blaming me when, in fact, political events had militated against our going. What hurt me most was her urging me to go with her to France, as previously planned, despite the council's decision. She refused to understand that it would have been rash to do so. We both stayed at the Hakshara. That summer, I became more involved with running the head office and organizing the Amsterdam group, so I took a room at the Yotza Invalida for a few months. The year was drifting by. A symphony orchestra formed in Arnhem, a city near Diren, and concerts began. 
Some members of the Hakshara were musically trained, so in the fall of 1946, the group decided to attend a series of concerts. There was a concert every month, and I became fond of classical music. The Concertgebouw Orchestra had given concerts when I lived in Amsterdam in 1941 and 1942. The Kosters attended those concerts, but I never could because I had to avoid all public gatherings. After the war, however, I heard the Concertgebouw Orchestra in its concert hall in Amsterdam. Whenever I went to Dieren, I saw Shoshana. I still cared for her very much, and she seemed to feel something for me too, but we kept our distance. Our organization continued to hold us back, delaying everything. The leaders declared that a chance to leave would come before long. Don't move, they said. The border to Israel will open one day soon. Stay put for now. My brother continued to write to me regularly, repeating, Come to Canada. You can study here. You were always a good student. If you come, you'll be able to develop yourself. Do what you want to do. If you go to a kibbutz in Israel, you'll never be able to study. By then, in my 25th year, I knew that if I didn't go back to school soon, I never would. I'd never yet seen the outside of a university, let alone the inside. And I'd always dreamed of studying something, of being somebody, someday. Here I was. After 25 years, my greatest achievement was surviving the war. Eddie dangled the bait before me. He asserted, You have an obligation to educate yourself. You haven't done so yet because you didn't have the opportunity. Come to Canada. You'll have the opportunity. After a while, I began to think, here I am, sitting in the Netherlands. I can't go to Israel. I'm bogged down in nowhere land. I have wasted my time in jails, then with the army. Now I'm in the same fix again. Our leaders counseled, be patient. Run the Hakshara until we're ready to move. They hesitated to risk having too many people interned by the British. It was a very trying period. Early in 1947, I discussed the situation with Avram Heller. I put all the facts to him and asked him, what should I do? He knew my whole story. Now I underlined the point that I had a chance to study. Avram agreed with Eddie's opinion. If you go to Israel, you'll end up in a kibbutz. You'll have no chance to study. Now you have a chance. Go. He himself had lived in a kibbutz in the land of Israel since about 1936. If you have a chance to study, he said, study. Then come to Israel after you've finished. This was the compromise, he proposed. This was the solution. I was leaning in that direction of my own accord. I'd been coming to the conclusion that my life had been miserable enough. As I had a chance to educate myself, I thought I should do so. And Avram helped me reach that decision. When I announced my plan, Shoshana heard about it and confronted me again. She told me not to go to Canada. She was afraid that if I went, she would never see me again. She wanted me to go to Israel, as she was still planning to do. She suggested we should marry, as we had planned before. By now, I was wary of Shoshana. I told her that if we still felt strongly about each other later on, and if it was materially possible, I would try to bring her to Canada. This didn't satisfy or convince her. I had now realized I couldn't take Shoshana with me. My brother was living with his in-laws and could only accommodate one person. He couldn't look after a couple, which would be too heavy a burden on him. I'd also often seen her moody and sensed it would be difficult for me to deal with her. 
she tended to put pressure on me impulsively. So even though we had become close again, and she urged me not to go, to stay with her, I was determined to go. Thank you.